Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, hello. A little bit late to everybody this week. I hope you all enjoyed your Thanksgiving in one way or another, whether that be schooling your conservative family about how the real first Thanksgiving happened, or whether that be eating large amounts of turkey and pie, whatever that means to you. I hope that you were surrounded by love, that you felt thankful and supported. And I was feeling very, very thankful yesterday for most of the day because because I think I'm remembering my timeline correctly, but I'm pretty sure it was the year of 2012 when I was in my second treatment center at Montanito in Calabasas, California. Big shout out to them for saving my life. Um, The way that they did Thanksgiving was so beautiful and so perfect, and it really became kind of like a life-changing moment for me in that day and my relationship with food and with holidays and you know all of that kind of stuff and we we made all of our own Thanksgiving food and I was 20 years old at the time yeah so it's 10 years ago I was 20 years old at the time and I had never really been charged with making much Thanksgiving food in my time. I was usually the one that was taking care of all of the younger kids while the adults took care of all the cooking and everything. So I never really helped in the kitchen growing up or anything. I'm sure I would have ruined Thanksgiving if I had. But I remember making pumpkin pie and sweet potato casserole and helping with the turkey and the stuffing and making everything by hand with the chef that was working there at the time. And part of making the food and really putting the love into it and then eating it afterwards was, for me, a really monumental part of my recovery and my change. And I remember it being one of the first times sitting down and having a a pretty large meal in treatment. I was about a month into the residential care center and not feeling like I immediately had to get up to soothe myself in some way. We stayed at that table for, God, a good hour, maybe hour and a half afterwards. And the residents, including all of the staff and everybody that was there, we went around this really big table and said what we were thankful for. I wanted to kind of start the episode with that because it was on my mind a lot yesterday and I made most of the food, I would say. Max's dad took care of the turkey and his mom made the stuffing, but I made their green bean casserole, their grandma's blueberry tort, I made an apple pie, I made my infamous bacon-wrapped Brussels sprouts. They are so good. And doing that practice of cooking for myself and for my family, and then sitting down and enjoying it and seeing everyone's extreme happiness with how good it was, is just like what that day means to me. It really is a 
a day of remembering my growth, being thankful for my life, especially when, you know, there was a time, and I mentioned this on Instagram yesterday, there was a time where I didn't think that I would ever be able to have Thanksgiving dinner ever again. I didn't think that I would ever allow myself to enjoy what really is like my favorite food. Like if you ask, what's your favorite food, Madigan? I'm going to tell you mac and cheese and Thanksgiving food. Pizza is a close third. So I guess in my recalling all of that, I just wanted to mention to any listeners that are struggling with eating disorders right now, I think about all of the things I missed out on during the years that I was really heavily within my eating disorder. And there are so many events in life that revolve around food, whether that be birthdays, weddings, holidays, all of those things. If you feel that you're in that space, try to remember to enjoy the people around you and remember that you are allowed to enjoy it. As long as you keep trying, there will be a time where you don't feel guilty or uncomfortable eating certain foods or eating a large amount of food or anything like that. And I encourage you to keep progressing in your recovery in any way that you can. And I am always here to support anybody who is going through a tough time. But hopefully hearing that I've been able to be out of it now for 10 full years, I'm hoping that that is a little bit inspirational to people knowing that if I can do it, you can do it too. Okay, now that I've talked about myself for a while, let's get into some news topics. The first story that I wanted to cover is another shooting that occurred this week. The shooting occurred on the night of November 19th into November 20th at Club Q, an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Now, November 20th is Transgender Day of Remembrance, which makes this horrible tragedy, even more sad because there were transgender people who were injured and lost their lives during this event. But it also kind of, to me, indicates possible motive and intention within this shooting. And I'm going to discuss a little bit more about Trans Day of Remembrance in a little bit. Five were killed and as many as 25 others were injured. 19 of them were injured by gunfire. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Club Q because Club Q really seems to be a very prominent part of Colorado Springs community, especially within the LGBTQ community. They were actually the first LGBTQ club to open in Colorado Springs back in 2002, and they were the only one for a while as well. A 2021 article in a Denver-based magazine noted that the club was, quote, where LGBTQ folks went for drag performances, dance parties, and drinks. But more than that, this club really sounds like a place for community, for anybody who felt like a bit of an outcast, who didn't feel like they fit in in the grander spectrum of Colorado Springs, could go to Club Q and find a sense of family and familiarity. Imagine that security being completely shattered when a shooter came into the club wearing protective body armor, carrying an AR-15 style rifle, and immediately opening fire while moving throughout the building. The initial call to police was at 11.56pm and the first responding officer was there on the scene by 12 midnight, so thankfully it only took four minutes for officers to get on the scene. Minutes into the shooting, U.S. Army veteran Richard M. Fierro, a patron at the club, charged across the room and tackled the shooter to the ground, causing the rifle to fall out of reach. Such a hero. He then grabbed the gun and used it to hit the shooter repeatedly in the head. Other patrons then began to join in, including another man by the name of Thomas James, who moved the rifle away to safety. 
And it's really upsetting to me that I couldn't find this woman's name anywhere on the internet. So if you happen to know this woman and her name, please reach out and let me know because I want to send her a DM of thanks. Uh, One trans woman used her high heels to stomp the shooter and help disable him and hold him down until the authorities arrived. And I also wanted to mention because I think that there has been a lot of misreporting on this particular incident and it has become such a major part of the story and it's been misreported a lot. A lot of media outlets are referring to the trans woman who stomped on the shooter as a drag queen. And a Twitter user by the name of Del Lucional, I think I'm Lucional, Del, uh, it's Del Lucional, I see it now, um, tweeted, the one who saved my life and stomped the shooter's face in was not a drag queen. She is a trans woman. Let's not call trans women drag queens during this time of grieving over transphobic attacks. I could not agree more. Our verbiage matters. What we say matters. This woman may have performed in drag. We are not sure, but this woman was clearly not a drag queen. She was a trans woman who stepped in and helped defend the rest of the club patrons. These are the names of the five people who lost their lives that night. The first was Derek Rump, who was a bartender at Club Q, and I read that if you heard Britney playing, you knew he was working the bar that night, which I love, and I have people in my life like that. Like at work, if I hear Lana Del Rey or Lady Gaga, I know my friend Eric is working, and I love it. Derek, along with the other bartender killed, Daniel Aston, were described as total opposites, but both were, quote, the light and heart of Club Q. Daniel Aston was actually a bar supervisor at the club. Daniel is a trans man and told his mom when he was four years old that he knew he was a boy. A decade later, he officially came out as trans. This is all according to his mother, who uh, spoke with journalists after the tragedy. Ashley Paw was a mother to a daughter named Riley and was incredibly dedicated to her. Another victim by the name of Kelly Loving, she truly exemplified her name. She is being remembered as a, quote, trans mother by other people in the trans community in Colorado Springs. She's described by friends as a fearless and supportive mentor in her trans community. Raymond Green Vance was 22 years old, and he was visiting Club Q for the first time that night with his longtime girlfriend, her parents, and some of her parents' friends to celebrate a birthday. Richard Fierro, the man who initially took down the shooter, was, was actually in Raymond Green Vance's party that night. It said that Raymond spent most of his free time with this girlfriend, who he had been with since middle school. Now, I'm not going to mention the accused, but I do want to talk a little bit about the media surrounding them a little bit. So the shooter is a 22-year-old from San Diego, California, to a former porn film actor, and his mom was the daughter of a California State Assembly member in the Republican Party. They were also a member of the LDS Church. The shooter was allegedly bullied in school, which involved homophobic slurs. And it doesn't sound like the homophobia stayed in school. It sounds like it was also at home as well. The shooter and their father were estranged for most of their life, and and they were mainly raised by their mom, who had a lot of mental health and drug problems and things like that. And it sounds like they were kind of sent around to different families and things like that. But their dad is a massive homophobic asshole. It has also come to light from the shooter's attorney that the shooter uses they, them pronouns and identifies as being non-binary. So what the father is about to say is hurtful to 
their child because they use male pronouns. But also, this is just homophobic as fuck. So trigger warning to what he said to a reporter. And then I go on to find out it's a gay bar. And I said, God, is he gay? I got scared. Shit, is he gay? And he's not gay. So I said, phew. Can you believe that that man actually said that? Like, I just, I, to feel that way is one way. You know, you hear a lot of religious people be like, hate the sin, not the sinner, and use all of these kind of like homophobic excuses for why they don't want to support gay people or people of the LGBTQ plus community in any way. But to so openly say the quiet part out loud and be like, oh shit, are they gay? And all this kind of stuff. Like, it's just so upsetting and unfortunate. And as much as none of this is an excuse for this person doing what they did, taking the lives that they did, coming into a club with a gun, your gender identity, sexual orientation, none of that changes the bad decisions and the bad actions that you have made in your life. But it also enrages me that what probably created a lot of this person was the unbelievable homophobia and self-hatred. And I think that that's also kind of a dangerous stereotype that a lot of perpetrators that go up against LGBTQ people are, you know, self-hating gay men and things like that. I think that that's a really dangerous stigma to continue, but I also think that it can be very valid in times as well, not as an excuse, but maybe as an explanation for us who want to understand why these things happen and how we're able to stop it. And I think that homophobia played such a huge, huge, huge part in this tragedy in so many different facets. And that's why I think this case is really, really challenging and really difficult on so many levels and so unbelievably tragic. So the shooter was charged with 10 felony counts after the arrest with five counts of murder and five counts of committing a bias-motivated crime causing bodily injury. A representative for GLAAD released a statement saying, quote, As we wait for evidence to emerge, what we do know is that this violent and unspeakable crime, which clearly targeted LGBTQ people, illustrates two factors. One, the epidemic of anti-LGBTQ rhetoric is infecting every part of America, created by politicians and their crass drive for power, parroted by right-wing media outlets, and amplified by social media platforms who prioritize profits over public safety. And two, Assault weapons continue to senselessly end American lives, and we need common-sense gun reform now. They continue discussing the growing levels of violence perpetrated against LGBTQ people, saying, quote, Newly released GLAAD polling shows a worsening climate for LGBTQ people. 72% of trans people and 48% of the LGBTQ community overall say that the current political environment makes them fear for their personal safety. So after I researched about the actual crimes that were committed this week, an article from Time Magazine popped up on my phone with the headline, Long before the Club Q shooting, Colorado Springs held a dark place in LGBTQ history. The fact that this article popped up on my phone triggered the memory of the fact that for a long time, Club Q was the only LGBTQ club to be built in Colorado Springs. And when it opened, it became more than a bar and a club, but a safe space for anyone who felt like an outcast in the area. So why was this the only place for LGBTQ people in Colorado Springs to go for such an extended amount of time? 
within the traditionally red El Paso County, where Trump won with 56% of the vote in 2016. It's also home to three of five military commands in the country, as well as the home of prominent conservative evangelical groups, such as Focus on the Family, BARF. In the 1990s, the city developed a reputation as a hub of anti-LGBTQ sentiment at a time when gay rights were a hot-button topic. Colorado became nationally known as the, quote, hate state when Focus on the Family fought for the passage of Amendment 2, a state bill that prevented local jurisdictions from passing non-discrimination protections for queer people. It passed in 1992 with 53% of the vote. Luckily, the Supreme Court struck down the amendment in 1996, but the damage had already been done in Colorado. With the success of Amendment 2 passing, Colorado Springs became, according to a former Colorado Springs councilman, Richard Scorman, the kind of place where a lot of anti-gay think-tanking happened. Though many of the evangelical ministries that have presided in Colorado Springs in the past have now left, it's believed that the rhetoric still heard today can easily track back to that time in the 90s. Granted, it wasn't that long ago. You may remember the story from back in 2018. I actually wonder if Keegan and I covered it because we had started the show by then. Colorado Springs was at the center of a controversy over drag queen story time. Now, variations of this are held all around the country where drag queens read stories to children in local libraries. And Club Q actually sponsored the event that happened in Colorado Springs. Of course, this created a huge uproar amongst conservatives in the area. Residents say that things seem to be getting better in the city, though, and the recent shooting was shocking to them, as they finally, according to Richard Scorman, quote, felt like they were really coming out of a dark time and a national reputation that we have felt like we were finally overcoming. I mentioned at the beginning of this topic that the tragedy occurred on the Transgender Day of Remembrance, and I wanted to talk a little bit about what that day exemplifies. The day is an annual observance on November 20th, which honors the memory of trans people whose lives were lost in acts of anti-trans violence. It started in 1999 when advocate Gwendolyn Ann Smith held a vigil for Rita Hester, a trans woman who was killed in 1998. In 2021, the human rights campaign tracked a record number of violent fatal incidents against trans and gender nonconforming people, with 50 fatalities tracked. So to end this segment, I want to say it's important right now to check in with your queer friends today and see how they're doing. The world is a really scary place for so many of them, and I'm sending the biggest hug and all of my love to those directly and indirectly damaged by this horrible tragedy. Before I move on to the rest of our topics for today, let's take a brief break for a few commercials. Sorry about it. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R A. 
K-U-T-E-N. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. All right, I am back and ready to move on to the next topic. So the World Cup kicked off in Qatar last Sunday with over a million spectators in attendance. With Qatar being the host of the World Cup, there has been heavy focus on the human rights violations condoned by the country's government. To me, this is very reminiscent of the most recent Olympics as well, which was held in Beijing in 2022. Qatar's poor record on labor rights and LGBTQ plus equality have been on the minds of activists from human rights organizations and from soccer associations around the world. In addressing the controversy, FIFA wrote to the 32 participating nations, urging them to focus on soccer and not the, quote, ideological or political battles that exist. Forget people's suffering. Watch the soccer. Everything's fine. Don't look over there. And this may sound shocking to some of you, but this isn't the first time that FIFA has come under scrutiny for turning a blind eye to human rights abuses. And I want to talk about them a little bit because I think it puts today's controversy into great perspective. In the 1970s, Chile and Argentina endured episodes of state-sponsored terrorism. Despite the evidence of human rights atrocities under conditions of military dictatorship, FIFA still hosted the 1974 World Cup qualifier in Chile and the 1978 World Cup in Argentina. The human rights abuses in Argentina were affected by the, quote, dirty war and its aftermath. The Dirty War was a civic military dictatorship comprising state-sponsored violence against Argentine citizenry between 1976 and 1983. Argentina was selected to host the 1978 World Cup, and the perspective of authoritarian government was that the games would create an excellent cover-up and soften the perceptions of Argentina abroad. They even hired an American PR team to help them, which they did. They suggested doing positive coverage in leading newspapers and magazines, which would help, quote, put the Argentine reality in its correct perspective. In Chile, while under control of Augusto Pinochet, I may have a typo in there, so I'm sorry if I said it wrong, but he's a dictator, so I don't care. State terrorism was committed by the Chilean armed forces, members of the Chilean police, and members of the secret police from 1973 until 1990. On September 11, 1973, Chilean President Salvador Allende was overthrown by a military coup. Allende was the first democratically elected socialist in the Americas. In the ensuing melee, the new armed forces and military regime detained, tortured, killed, or disappeared thousands of people. According to the Commission of Truth and Reconciliation and the National Commissions on Political Imprisonment and Torture, suggest that the number of direct victims of human rights violations in this time account for about 30,000 people. 
27,255 were tortured, 2,279 were executed, and an additional 200,000 people suffered exile. In efforts to assert control, the regime set up at least 80 detention centers in Santiago, and the National Stadium was one of those sites. The venue was transformed into the largest detention center in the country, becoming a literal concentration camp where political prisoners were tortured. From September to November 1973, the National Stadium held at least 20,000 prisoners who were either waterboarded, beaten, shocked, sexually abused, or assassinated. Nevertheless, FIFA decided to go with Santiago and the National Stadium to host the World Cup qualifier between Chile and the Soviet Union that November. The Soviet team was absolutely outraged over the treatment of these prisoners and refused to play at the venue. FIFA officials, however, declared, We are not concerned with politics or what regimes are ruling a country. If Russians refuse to play Chile, then they are out of the World Cup. So that's what they did. The Soviet team responded with a boycott. When FIFA's delegation inspected the stadium grounds, prisoners were found hiding in dressing rooms and tunnels, hidden safely away from the playing field and out of sight of spectators. Upon finding the prisoners, instead of FIFA ensuring that these people were sent somewhere safe, the military regime sent them off to a concentration camp in Atacama Desert, and the games went on as planned. Of course, Chile won unopposed and qualified for the 1974 World Cup. According to Amnesty.org, migrant workers in Qatar face labor abuses and struggle to change jobs freely. They must get permission from their employer to leave their current job to look for another one, which I'm sure a lot of employers are like, no, I'm keeping you. You're not going anywhere. And now the situation is even more difficult for women because, of course, women's human rights are treated even worse than men's for the most part. And the situation is difficult for them because many women work as live-in domestic workers. And the isolated spaces where they both live and work in the homes of their employers makes it even more difficult for them to leave those jobs. Freedom of expression has been heavily punished for those who have spoken out for workers' rights, and in May, an activist was held in solitary confinement for a month, and he was denied legal counsel. In July, this activist was fined by the Supreme Judiciary Council under the controversy cybercrime law for publishing, quote, false news with the intent of endangering the public system of the state. And like I hinted to a moment ago, women in Qatar face discrimination both in law and in practice. They live under a guardianship system where women remain tied to their male guardian, usually their father, brother, grandfather, or uncle, until they are married. Then she becomes guarded by her husband, and her husband then makes pretty much all the decisions for her in her life. They need permission to marry from their fathers or other male guardian that they have been assigned, I guess. They need permission to study abroad, to work in government jobs, and to receive forms of reproductive health care. Family laws also make it difficult for women to obtain a divorce, and a divorced woman is unable to act as their children's guardians upon divorce. Sodomy, which is referred in some places as same-sex sexual contact between men, remained an offense under the penal code punishable for up to seven years imprisonment. And this is a topic I've mentioned a lot of times that I wanted to go into further in a full-length episode, but sodomy laws have occurred virtually everywhere at some point in time, and it has led to a real misunderstanding of what sodomy is, what it means, and the stigma behind it. So, 
Sodomy, by definition, is simply anal sex or oral copulation. It has nothing to do with gay men in particular, though sodomy laws did directly affect gay men the most. And there is a large stigma around sodomy, meaning other things as well, meaning even things like bestiality. So clumping bestiality and a gay relationship into the same definition really led to a lot of terrible, violent crimes against the gay community in different parts of the world, in different parts of history. Article 296 in Qatar states that, quote, leading, instigating, or seducing a male in any way to commit sodomy or dissipation, and, quote, inducing or seducing a male or female in any way to commit illegal or immoral acts. Now, if I were to read the second part of that statement, maybe I would assume that violence against women would be protected under this law, but I doubt it from my understanding of women's rights. TV networks around the world are divided about how to present the World Cup this year. Human rights organizations have demanded that FIFA match the $440 million prize money and set it aside for payment to migrant workers. I highly doubt FIFA is going to do that, but we will see how this story unfolds over the next few weeks as the World Cup goes on. I've been talking about Taylor Swift a lot on this show lately, but I think it's because I've also been talking about her a lot in life. You know that I have a very complicated history with Miss Swift. I don't know how much I can necessarily say because I signed an NDA, but I did meet her a few times during one of my jobs as she was like a family friend, friend of one of the families that I used to work for. So I met her a few times. She was so, so sweet, so, so nice. Um, easy to be around uh, to herself, but very, very nice. So meeting her really gave me a very positive outlook on her as a person. But I have a lot of problems with her. <laughs> One of the main ones that we've discussed on this show before is that for years and years and years, she was kind of hailed as this like Aryan queen and never stepped forward to be like, wait, what? No, I'm, I don't want to represent that. She never said anything about denying it or anything for a really long time, which made things really confusing. She was also very, like, not political for a really long time, and now suddenly she acts super political when she wants to and then doesn't mention anything when she doesn't want to. I just think that politically and personally, she's very complicated. But at the same time, a very nice person. So this isn't to say that she's a bad person or anything like that, but I do not agree with everything she does. So let's talk a little bit about the Taylor Swift Ticketmaster debacle. Last week, Ticketmaster absolutely shut down when Swift fans were trying to get tickets for her upcoming Eras tour. Now, I would love to go to this tour. I've been a fan of Taylor's since I was 13 years old, and I would love nothing more than to see her perform songs from her first album. I would really love to like see her perform our song, Tim McGraw, Tied Together with a Smile, like any of those songs from her first album, I would like love to see live. So I get it. We want to see her perform Taylor's greatest hits. I love it. And fans showed up in droves because, of course, they did and got onto the Ticketmaster website and it ended up shutting down and having a lot of other problems. There was one fan who waited in line for eight hours and was never able to get a ticket. But then when she went to her bank statement, she saw that she was charged 14 times for tickets, even though she didn't get one. Her bank account was overdrawn by nine thousand dollars causing it to be frozen can 
you imagine i cannot i would die i would literally i would dm taylor myself and be like bitch fix it (laughs) i don't have nine thousand dollars do something about this please Ticketmaster canceled public sales on Thursday after all the tickets sold out during the exclusive pre-sale. So let's talk a little bit about Ticketmaster because Ticketmaster sucks. They are the most dominant provider of event tickets in America, and in 2010, they merged with Live Nation, the country's largest event promoter. The company owns more than 70% of the ticketing and live event venue market. You are also probably aware that ticket prices are also at an all-time high. Back in August, tickets to see The Boss, a.k.a. Bruce Springsteen, cost up to $4,000. And this is all due to something called dynamic pricing. Back in 2011, Ticketmaster announced it would be adjusting its pricing based on consumer demand. The aim was to keep tickets from being siphoned off onto secondary markets, providing more revenue for the artist, venues, and ticket providers. And this makes sense to me. I think that the money should be going to the artist and the people creating the event, setting it up, the producers, all that kind of stuff. You know, it takes a lot of money to create a Taylor Swift level tour and those people deserve to be paid, right? But it's also important to remember that it is the artist that chooses Ticketmaster and the way things are priced, not the other way around. According to Bob Lefsitz, a music industry analyst, he said that, quote, it's important to remember that it's the artist telling Ticketmaster this is what they want to do, not the other way around. So who's the problem? Taylor Swift. She's the problem. It's her. Of course, I'm not being serious about this. Taylor is not the only artist that is involved with Ticketmaster and sets these prices and things like that. It is only to tie in the song Antihero, which I love. But anyways, other artists such as Drake, Paul McCartney, My Beloved, and Harry Styles have all embraced dynamic pricing. But it wasn't always this way. When ticket prices first started going up in the 90s, there were some artists that were very confused by why prices were so high. One of my favorite Kurt Cobain moments was when he found out what people were paying to see Nirvana. And I'm going to play a quick clip of that now. Uh, our uh, bands charge ticket prices, basically. Ah, like we had ticket prices. First question is, what do, what do you think of artists who do charge anywhere between 50 to $75 for tickets there are who charges charge that, that much, much money who does Apparently. that madonna. Like, madonna how much does? do we charge a ticket john yeah but that's like a burlesque show it's a big production 27 12 you can speak is that 12 or 21 17 to 18 bucks a ticket wow madonna charges 50 dollars apparently Madonna wears Madonna wears fur too. Did you know that? We were talking about boy, we should charge twenty five dollars and really milk it. (laughs) Really take them for all they got. They want to come. Let's see how bad they really want to see the band play. So seventeen. We charge seventeen dollars. So what? what Fugazi's playing tonight. They're charging five. Six. How does that make you feel? Weak. (laughs) Exploited. All right, I'm going to stop it there, but I actually played that clip longer because I didn't remember their mentioning of Ticketmaster in particular in that interview. And let me see. Now, this video was back from 1993, and it is so clear how much our prices have changed between 1993 and today. But I really, really love that interview, and I think it gives a really great insight into you know, how certain artists view the pricing and how some artists don't really seem to give a shit. 
Taylor Swift fans are now asking the artists to stop supporting dynamic pricing. The Taylor Swift ticket prices were supposed to be between $49 and $449, with VIP packages priced at $199 to $899. These prices have gone up and up and up, leading her fans to ask her to please stop supporting dynamic pricing. And I don't really know what the solution is because I like the fact that these you know, secondhand ticket holders aren't able to take more of the money to then go scalp the tickets and things like that. I also think that it's such a shame that people can't experience their favorite artists in their lifetime because of the prices. It's so unbelievably difficult to be able to have an experience like that. And I think that it should be more accessible. Thank you for listening to me rant and rave in another mini episode. If there are any news topics that you want me to cover in the future, please email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or DM me on the podcast Instagram page at Angry Neighborhood Feminist. If you want to follow my personal page and see what I'm doing in my day-to-day life, please go ahead and follow my personal page at She's Madigan, S-H-E-S-M-A-D-I-G-A-N. The podcast has a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review it in the business page and chat with other listeners in the group page. And last but certainly not least, I'm going to remind you all once again that if you haven't done so, please go over to your Apple podcast app, leave a five-star review with a quick sentence as to why you enjoy the show. That little sentence does make a big difference because if somebody is on the fence and sees the show, they might read why you enjoy it and think that they'll like it as well. You can also rate the show on Spotify. All right, I'm all done for today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Anna Sheridan, New York Times bestselling author of Supernatural Horror, missing for nearly six months now. That's not possible. Given the circumstances of her disappearance, someone with a more vivid imagination might decide she'd pierce the veil, so to speak. Weak radio signal. 700 meters. Closing fast. There's no place for ghost stories and close encounters in this investigation, or any other. I need you to find me. What else would it be? The Sheridan Tapes, a serialized horror mystery podcast. Stream the complete series today on Realm and on all podcasting platforms.